This is a Crestview Bible Podcast. For more information, visit crestviewhutch.org. I asked Meg as we were starting, um, as I was looking over these notes, do you remember the tale of Rumpelstiltskin? Uh, you might have heard that growing up. Uh, grow, up. It's a grim fairy tale, so I know they've turned all the grim stuff into dark movies, and this Rumpelstiltskin is kind of a dark one. I remember being scared by this when I was younger. It's a famous tale that involves a character named Rumpelstiltskin. Um, I know that's a shocker um, that it's called Rumpelstiltskin. Um, But he had an amazing talent to weave straw into gold. And there's a a miller in town, in this town as the fable goes, that was boasting that his daughter could weave straw into gold. And so uh, she's brought in by the king to do this and she can't do it. And she's, you know, crying and, oh, what's gonna happen? Rumpelstiltskin comes to her aid. He weaves the straw into gold and gives her an exchange for a gift, like an exchange for, so I think she gives him a ring and then the second time it happens, she gives him a necklace and then the third time it happens, she promises Rumpelstiltskin her firstborn child. This is where it gets kind of dark, Um, her firstborn child. Well, her skill is so amazing that she ends up marrying the king uh, because the king wants a spouse that can do this magic trick and they have their first baby and Rumpelstiltskin comes for the payment. He's offered all the wealth of the kingdom, but refuses. And so he agrees that I'll cancel my claim if you can guess my name. And so he comes to the king, they fail. They don't know his name. They guess number two and it doesn't work. And they're despondent, Rumpelstiltskin's celebrating. He's all, you know, look, I got him right where I want him. And uh, she walks out into the forest as the fable goes and is just kind of despondent, trying to figure out how am I ever gonna figure out this name? And here's him celebrating with glee and he's announcing his name as part of this song that he's singing. So he comes for the third time, they guess his name and Rumpelstiltskin is so angry that he runs away and never comes back. Or the version I grew up hearing was, he stomped hard with his left foot. He stomped hard with his right foot and the earth opened and no one ever saw him again. Uh, Rumpelstiltskin. The knowledge needed in that story was all a game. It was a ruse. It was a trick so that Rumpelstiltskin could get what he wanted. Now, when it comes to what we believe in our faith, we're not clinging to fairy tales. We don't move forward through this life or the life eternally, pridefully just operating so that we get better stuff. (laughs) We don't, it's not just that we have a better story than other religions. No, what makes our faith what it is is who our faith is centered in. So uh, Shailen puts it this way in the song, Jesus is Alive. He says, Plato is dead, Socrates is dead, Aristotle and Immanuel Kant are dead, Nietzsche and Darwin are dead. However, Jesus is alive. Um, That's how the song goes. Buddha is dead, Muhammad is dead, Gandhi and Hali Salasi are dead, Elijah Muhammad is dead. However, Jesus is alive. That's what our faith is. We have a risen Lord and Savior. Now we've seen some amazing truths about Jesus already in the Gospel of Luke. So through this Advent season, we saw a rhythm where something was promised and then it was fulfilled. And then there was an effect that that had on people. So we've seen Jesus navigate, relating to his parents at the end of chapter two. And last week we, uh, with Luke's sermon, we saw the ministry of John the Baptist preparing the hearts of religious people for the ministry of Jesus for who Jesus was and for his ministry. And I loved that sermon and what what John was saying in that text, 
that it's not just that we need to turn from sin, that's part of it, but we need to turn to the, a way of life consistent with our master. So repentance isn't just forsaking something, it's walking into something, and that's so helpful. If we call Jesus Lord, then we're gonna be consumed with him. We were made, after all, by him. We were made for him. He's everything to us. Now, in today's passage, we have what, at first glance, might appear to be three unrelated episodes. So we're looking at a baptism, we're looking at a genealogy, and we're looking at Jesus' temptation. But when we take these episodes together and we tie them back to Luke's purpose for writing, we see that this passage provides us even more certainty regarding the things that we've been taught concerning Jesus. And I'm alleging in this sermon that Jesus is a savior worth giving your life, your soul, your all. Um, that he's worth following. But when we see Jesus, it raises some natural questions in our, life, in our lives. And God in his kindness puts down what sets Jesus apart on paper. That's what this passage shows. Like it's almost like a resume. This is what sets Jesus apart. And it's kind of put down on paper for us to benefit from. So today, you may have natural questions that come to your mind for Jesus as you consider him. Questions are natural regarding Christianity as it's revealed in the Bible. Uh, here's how C.S. Lewis put it. Uh, he urged his readers in his collection of essays called God in the Dock, and I would echo what C.S. Lewis says. If there's no God, then we have no interest in the minimal religion or any other. We'll not make a lie even to save civilization. So like if there's no God, what, why should we try to do anything for better? But if there is, then it is so probable as to be almost axiomatic that the initiative lies wholly on his side. If he can be known, it will be by self-revelation on his part, not by speculation on ours. So we therefore look for him where it's claimed that he has revealed himself, by miracle, by inspired teachers, by enjoined ritual. The traditions conflict, yet the longer and more sympathetically we study them, the more we become aware of a common element in many of them the theme of sacrifice, of mystical communion through the shed blood, of death and rebirth, of redemption. It's too clear to escape notice. So what he's saying is like, if we can pause long enough to consider that God is the one who has to make the first move to tell us what he's like. And if he's done that, if we look at that, yes, there's all kinds of traditions that see that, but there are common themes that emerge. And if we can land on those, we're gonna see distilled who God really is. And I think that's what we get in this passage. So today we get to hold our questions to God's revelation and see if Jesus delivers. Is he really a savior that we can put our trust in? Is he really someone we can have confidence in? And I think you will find that Jesus does indeed answer when it comes to your questions. So I invite you to join me as we consider and see three questions that Jesus answers. Three questions that Jesus answers. Now I'm gonna go ahead and read this entire passage uh, beginning in verse 21. There are 77 weird names at the end of Luke 3. As I read those, you're probably gonna look at that and say, that's not how I pronounce it, of course. Like, there's not many Hebrews in here. Um, I don't know, I'm sure I'm botching up the names. So just let's enjoy that together and laugh together as we, as we try to say these names. As you're following along, you're gonna be like, he said that, I can't believe that, I'm gonna say that. And then uh, when we get to the end, I'll say, uh, this is God's word, thanks be to God. So beginning in verse 21. 
Now, when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Methot, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maaf, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Resha, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kasim, the son of Almadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Mela, or Malaya, the son of Mena, the son of Mattatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sarug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in the moment of time and said to him, to you, I'll give the authority and the glory for it has been delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered, it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him in the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their, head, on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. So three questions that Jesus answers. And first of all, at that baptism in verses 21 and 22, the first question answered in this passage is, does the father approve of him? Does the father approve of Jesus? This first point answers a question that makes me wonder, what makes Jesus unique? Or we might ask the question, who does Jesus think he is? And we're told that while all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. We were told in verse three of chapter three, if you look up there, that John the baptizer went around the region of the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Why would Jesus need to do such a thing? Why would Jesus need to be baptized? as an act of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So right from the start, we see Jesus taking the place of sinners. We all need to do that, Jesus doesn't. 
And Jesus, right at the outset of his ministry, is starting to take the place of sinners already, right at the outset. He didn't need to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, but he's doing this to identify with the sinners he was coming to rescue. And as he's baptized, he's praying, the heavens open, the Holy Spirit descends on him in bodily form like a dove, and the voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So this verse is so rich with truth. We see the Godhead present, we see the beloved son, the father speaking his pleasure over his son, and the spirit descending like a dove on the son. So all of God is delighting in the work that Jesus is coming to do. So the spirit came upon Jesus to enable and empower him for the work that he was set apart to do. The father's delighting in his son. He's helping us see that Jesus isn't just a human like us. He's God's beloved son. He is the son of God. And God has a great delight in him. From eternity past to eternity future, the father is fully delighted in his son. So the the question, does the father approve of his son? The answer is yes. In Jesus, His beloved son, God is well pleased. And this is so consequential for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. We we have him as our savior. We have him as our Lord. Listen to how uh, a Bible commentator, uh, Thibiti, connects this. He said, this is why all those who were in Christ by faith also have God as a father who is pleased with them. The father looks at the faithful and he sees his son All the Son has done to please the Father has become ours through our union with Christ, through faith in him. This is why Christians have every right to fight those nagging doubts and whispers that come along sometimes to suggest that God is not happy with us. If we have made the hard choice of repenting of our sins and coming to God, we can expect to hear a blessing from God, not condemnation. We don't have to shudder or cower for fear of a harsh word or rebuke from God. He gave us that rebuke to turn away from sin And what we can joyfully and confidently expect to hear now that we are in Christ are words similar to these words spoken at our Lord's baptism. I'm pleased with you because of Christ. So our comfort, our security before God, our joy in his presence, our sense of safety and delight come from this marvelous statement from heaven. Jesus is God's son and God is pleased with him. And God is pleased with us because we are in him through faith. So everything, like we are united to Jesus. Like um, we talked about that in 2 Corinthians 5, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That exchange has taken place. We get all of Christ when we put our faith in him. And so as the father announces over his son, yes, there is something unique he's saying about his son, but he's also saying something very unique about us as his people, that as we are in Christ, the father is delighting over us with singing. He's rejoicing over us. He's delighted in what the son has done to make us his. So we need to celebrate that and lean into that. The question of God's approval of Jesus packs a wallop for us that God delights in in those of us who are in Christ the way he delights in his beloved son. So that's the first question that's answered. Secondly, we have another question answered in this passage which gets at the question, is Jesus human like us? Is Jesus human like us? So does the father approve of his son? Yes. Is Jesus human like us? And we have this amazing um, genealogy from verses 23 to 38. Um, Scholars have long discussed this genealogy and how it differs from the genealogy that we see at the beginning of Matthew. 
Um, there's some observations that we can make in contrast. If you remember the Matthew genealogy, it starts with Abraham and it moves forward to David and then it culminates in Joseph. Um, and this genealogy starts with Jesus and moves back through 77 names. And we get the impression, as one writer says, even as I was reading it, you were like, gosh, this is a lot of names. Um, we get the impression that this is a long, slow story that has at last reached its goal in the moment of Jesus. It's almost like you could say that all of humanity is finally finding its culmination in Jesus. Like we've been waiting from Adam. We've been waiting from God created Adam to Seth, to Enos, to Canaan, to Mahaliel, to Jared, to Enoch, to Methuselah, to Lamech, to Noah, to on and on. We've been waiting and waiting for help. We've been waiting for a savior and now he's come. So this revelation does have some difficulties. Um, there's, if you hold those genealogies side by side, there's turns that it makes and it goes different directions. Um, in my mind, it just always, I'm always mindful of how it kind of goes through kind of Mary's line. It's kind of the son of, yes, he's the son of Joseph, as was supposed, the son of Heli, but it's kind of tracing it back through his human lineage. So, um, but, but I think one connection that we can make clearly from the text is, uh, who does it end with? It ends with Adam, the son of God. And what's the next verse say? So chapter four begins with Jesus beginning his ministry full of the Holy Spirit and being led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So we know something about somebody like Adam being tempted. And now we have another Adam being tempted. I mean, it's just significant. Um, this connects a son of Adam with the first Adam. And we know what happened with Adam at that first temptation. Will this temptation turn out the same way? So here we have a second Adam from heaven above representing humanity. And we see that with his ministry, Jesus is gonna to begin to unravel all that the fall did. All that Adam's mess up did. Jesus is gonna unravel that. And there's also an application for us that in connecting Jesus to Adam, we see that Jesus is as human as you can get. Like he's fully human. He, he can trace his genealogy back to Adam. This genealogy connects Jesus back to the start of humanity, showing that Jesus is the fulfillment of the hopes of all people. Like it doesn't matter, like everybody comes from Adam. Like as we read the Bible story, everybody, regardless of skin color or background or everything is traced back to Adam. And that's who Jesus is traced back. He's a human for everyone. So to summarize what we see at the end of chapter three, Jesus is fully man and fully God and his salvation is for all peoples everywhere, for every race, every tribe, every linguistic group. Jesus is fully human, just like us. So he passes the human test. He passes the human questions. Verses 20 and 21 were all the God questions. Does the father delight in the son? Does he approve of him? And now in this genealogy, we have the, the human question answered. Yes, he's human just like us. Well, third and finally, we get to another important question and I'm, I'm putting the question like this. Will Jesus stay true to his mission? Will Jesus stay true to his mission? Will he stay devoted to what the father has set out for him to do? 
And we have this temptation. Luke's description of Jesus' temptation draws our hearts to see, will, will this Savior, this Son of God, this fully man person, really do all that we've already seen in the Gospel of Luke? Like, we need a Savior who's entirely God and fully man and who can deliver when it comes to saving. I mean, the message to the angels, from the angels to the shepherds in the field, is that really gonna happen? Like, is, is he really gonna bring peace on earth and goodwill towards men? Is he really gonna be born for us, a savior, Christ the Lord? Is he gonna do that as he lives life on this earth? We need a savior who does that. Is Jesus gonna be able to do that? So Jesus is led to be tempted by the devil for 40 days. This wording likely means that Satan was not just tempting Jesus these three times, but for 40 days in the wilderness, Jesus was barraging uh, being barraged by Satan with all kinds of temptations. These are just three that stood out. Um, he was led into the wilderness and was tempted by the devil consistently. Consistently he's being tempted and these three stood out. So these three are worded for us. Um, and we get a representation of these. Now, uh, pastors love to pontificate using the letter P. So um, I saw one writer summarize these three temptations as Jesus being tempted with provision, power, and protection. Provision, power, and protection. So there's your piece for today if you need those. Um, but it's also a good um, way to remember what's actually being tempted. Like he's, he's tempted with protection or provision. So hungry Jesus who hadn't eaten for 40 days is tempted with bread. And he responds by quoting Deuteronomy 8.3, man shall not live by bread alone. Then the devil takes him up and shows him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment, offering these things if Jesus will worship him. So he's tempted with power. You can be as powerful as I am. That's what Satan's saying. And Jesus is saying that God is the one who's to be worshiped and served. God is the one who's most powerful. And finally, Jesus is taken to the pinnacle of the temple and encouraged to throw himself down. You know, God's gonna protect you. So uh, Satan even twists Psalm 91 verses 11 and 12 to try to tempt Jesus into this. Um, so God isn't being trusted, God's being tested. And Jesus responds with Deuteronomy 6.16, that God is to be trusted, served, and worshiped, not tested. So this beloved son is enraptured with his father and he's not gonna be drugged away to serve rivals. He was locked into what he was sent to do. So he passes the test. Now, um, I've heard a lot of sermons on the temptation over my life. And like you, you've probably heard this, that you know, what's important here is that you know, Jesus used the word of God and he stood up every time Satan came to him. He had, a, he had a verse and so you ought to hide God's word away in your heart. And I just, I don't have that kind of confidence in myself. Like, I feel like if Satan came to come after me and I had this approach like, well, take two Bible verses and call me in the morning you know, that somehow Satan's just gonna kick my butt. Like, he, he's gonna nail me every time because I'm weak. He knows the scriptures probably better than I do. You know, he's, he's gonna win that. So what is this passage telling me? Um, so the question is, why is this text given to us? Is it so that we can trust God's word or is it so that we can trust God's son? Now, trusting God's word, I think that's an application. So I'm not in any way suggesting that you shouldn't 
know the scriptures. But Jesus perfectly interprets it and he's perfectly obedient. And he's showing in this passage why he can stand up to any test because he is truly God's son. So Satan's not so subtle that he can do with Jesus what he did with Adam and Eve in the garden. He's not so effective that he can cause the Christ, the son of God, to grumble against God because of, the, because of hunger, the way he caused Israel to do in the wilderness. You know, Israel went into the wilderness for 40 years and they're grumbling about their hunger. That's not so with Jesus. He's passing the test. So our primary application is that Jesus is God's son. Trust him. The Lord endured temptation in our place. So in our temptation, we can flee to Christ. He's conquered our adversary. The son stands in our place to defeat the temptation that often defeats us. Jesus didn't defeat temptation to say, okay, get after it, now you do it. Like, like here's a magic trick and here's how I defeated him. Now here's how you do it. You just know scriptures and you can defeat him too. No, as Jesus endures this temptation, he's becoming our great high priest. That's what Hebrews 4.15 teaches us, that he's been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. So right now, right now, at this very moment, Jesus is reigning in the heavens as a priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses and who now makes it possible for us to approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we can receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. So our Lord didn't endure this just so we could have a model to follow. He did this so that we could have mercy when we fail, when we blow it, when we need help. He delivers us. He stands as a priest for us, offering both a sacrifice and offering righteousness for us. So the ultimate issue here is whether Jesus is the son of God. That's why Satan keeps coming at him at this way. So Satan's real aim is to destroy Jesus' sonship so that he might destroy our salvation because if Jesus fails in any of these temptations, he could not be a sinless sacrifice that takes away the sin of the world. So Satan unleashes all this demonic assault, the most demonic assault in the history of all of creation. And Jesus remains faithful to his father through it all. No natural man could do that. Only God could. Only God could. So here the God-man passes the test that Adam and Eve failed. He survives the temptation that even Israel failed in the, in the Exodus. He passes the test that we all have failed. And in doing so, he becomes our ever-present help in times of need, in times of temptation. So this means that in our temptations, our best strategy is to run to Jesus to find him to be our strength, that he's our high priest who's praying and interceding for us. He's our victory. He's our confidence. So however well we may know the word of God, let us not begin to think that we know it so well that we don't need to flee to Jesus, our high priest, who's overcome the tempter on our behalf. It's such an important word. Um, I think sometimes we think that our Bible knowledge um, puts us on a level where I kind of got this and we've drifted into self-righteousness without even knowing it. And you wake up every day and you only need one thing, Jesus. You need more of him. So the question of this passage, will Jesus stay true to his mission? We can confidently affirm yes. And we can walk away from this passage with all the confidence in the world that we have in Jesus, a God man who can save to the uttermost anyone who comes to him by faith. So he doesn't just save us as like a dreamy idea that, you know, you could possibly be saved. No, he's saying like, I can do this. Like I've done it. 
I've vanquished everything that could separate you. I can represent God's interest, I can represent your interest, and I'm gonna fulfill this mission. And Satan himself, Satan himself cannot stop me. So in conclusion today, we've seen these three questions that this passage answers. Does the Father approve of Jesus? Yes. Is Jesus human like us? Yes. And will Jesus stay true to his mission? Yes. So today, the question I have for you is, will you go all in with Jesus? Don't settle for anyone less than him, including yourself. The father delights in his son. He's fully God. He's human, just like us. So we have an outstanding representative in him. And even when tempted by the devil, he stayed faithful to his father and the father's plan for his life. So I think this passage is encouraging you. Trust Jesus with your life. Give him all that you are. Don't rest in your own confidence. Rest in him. Another final word has to do with adoring Jesus himself in our lives. So we see from this account that Jesus is the true human succeeding where Adam and Israel failed and the one who triumphs over the devil. He is the son of God, the king, the Messiah. I mean, this is your Lord. So I think sometimes in temptation, we feel like we're victims and there's no hope. And oh, I just can't, I wish I could pull something off. We can't do this. And what we're seeing is that we're trusting one who triumphed over the devil. He's triumphed over the devil. I think another thing we see here is that um, the greatest antidote, the one commentator wrote this, that the greatest antidote to pride is worship. So when we're proud, we exalt ourselves as great. But when we worship, we exalt God as great. When we're proud, we're saying, look at me. But when we worship, we're saying, look at God. When we're proud, we want people to serve us. When we worship, we want people to serve God. So all this passage of trying to beckon Jesus, you know, he's saying, trust me, do what's best for yourself. You know, get something to eat. You know, protect yourself. You know, trust that God's gonna, you know, you can just be reckless. It doesn't, you know, look for your own interests. And, and Jesus is saying, no, I'm not gonna look for my own interests. I'm gonna look to the interest of others. I'm gonna look to the interest of what my father wants. That's what my life is. It's meant to be a life of worship. I'm, I'm pointing everything to him. And at the end of this, Jesus gets all the glory forever. As he fulfills his work, and we're gonna keep seeing that as we walk through um, next week, even as Jesus begins his ministry and opens up scrolls and talks about, you know, this is what I came to do. Right at the outset here, he's saying, like, just watch how this holds true throughout the narrative. Watch how this holds true throughout the Gospel of Luke, that we have a savior that we can cling to, a savior who gets the job done. When he, when he says it is finished and rises from the dead, I mean, he's gonna get the job done and all glory is gonna go to him forever. So let's strive to know him. Let's strive to know him. He's everything we need. And let's make him known so that others may be caught up to glorify and enjoy him forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this passage and um, for all that Jesus has done. Um, he's... He's a perfect savior for us. Um, we couldn't have ever done this on our own. We couldn't have ever been perfect embodiments of God, of you, but Jesus was. Um, we're, we're humanness, and yet with our humanness, there's fallenness. 
And Jesus has come to relate to that, to come near to us, to walk in our shoes. And then when we face temptation, we're so thankful that we have Jesus as our hope, that he's the one we can run to and that he never diver- diverted from the mission. Even when tempted, he's, he's drawn up to you. His life is drawn to you. And so might we today respond by just um, leaning into him, depending on him, trusting in him. Can we, could we see his resume here as sufficient and able to save all of us to the full? And would we go all in with him with confidence that all of our questions are answered in Christ? All of your promises, God, are true in him. So might we find him to be a savior who delivers today? So we ask all of this in Jesus' name.